Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. I believe the clinical term is dust balls. Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Joy Press. And I'm Chris Murphy. And we're here to discuss the fourth episode of season two of the Max series, and just like that, alive. Vivant. (laughs) That's French for alive. Yes, yes, of course. And later on, Nicole Ari Parker, who plays Elisa Todd Wexley, will be stopping by to talk about finding her groove in the second season and her big anniversary dinner where no one turns up. And yes, if you did catch that, Joy Press is back. Hi, guys. Joy, before we get into a recap of this particular episode, um, I need to get your sort of temperature about like how you're feeling about this season in general. You know, I had mixed feelings about season one. You might recall that I'm the queen of ambivalence, but (laughs) I feel like season two is really picking up speed. You know, and this episode in particular just really feels like a classic sort of Sex in the City episode, which... I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, it. this feels like the, they finally got off the runway. Like the whole yeah. first season was them setting up all of these more amusing and sort of, like it just feels lighter on its feet. Yeah, the plan is taken off. We're, we're in the air. I actually laughed out loud during this episode, yeah, which I go. cannot say about anything in when season one. Carrie so. says, jizz, 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 jizz. <laughs> that, that got me. <laughs> on that note, let's get into the recap. So we're episode four. All caps alive with an exclamation mark. That's the title of the episode. Uh, Enid Frick, Carrie's old Vogue editor, is back. And she's tapping investors to start a new online magazine about aging called Vivant. 
women our age are grossly underrepresented in the media. So I, I'd love it if you could get involved. You're perfect for it. But what Carrie's really after is a plug for her book in Enid's newsletter. And Carrie is wrestling with being lumped into Enid's age group. What is happening? Was my life recently hacked by the AARP? An ill-timed dick pic of Enid's boyfriend ends up costing Carrie a hundred grand. Let's circle back to what we were talking about before. Before you called me old? So how much did you say you wanted? Miranda is propositioned for a threesome by Che and their husband Lyle, and Miranda freaks out. You know what, guys? It, this just isn't me, so just, 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 you should, you should carry on. Lisa Todd Wexley and Herbert throw a 20th anniversary party, which turns into an all-you-can-eat seafood dinner for seven as they forgot to invite their guests. So, I hope you're hungry, because we have a four-course meal coming for 31 people. Oh my God. And with the kids off at summer camp, Charlotte and Harry discover his orgasms are missing one key characteristic. The orgasm was very present and powerful, just invisible. So it's Casper the friendly cum. Oh my God. So, Joy and Chris, I know I said this last week, I don't know if you listen, Joy, but Last week felt like an old-school Sex and the City episode. This episode also did, yeah. I think. Which is my way of saying we have to start with Harry's no-show <laughs> no orgasm. I thought you were going to say we have to start with Enid Frick. But well, I guess we could go either way. I think but... the no-show orgasm is really sort of even more classically Sex and the City than yeah. Enid Frick. It was a real, like, C plot line from the old show. Not quite, a, quite the last one, but, you know, it had a beginning, a middle, and an ending. Yes. A resolution. I don't know. Does it feel like this is a conscious effort on the show's part to, I don't know, listen to fan complaints about season one and try to do more of those old school things? Yeah, just because they seem to be a little bit more in on the joke this time. And it was nice to have sort of a storyline that you could just plop in. You don't have to know anything about Mm -mm. Charlotte and Harry at all. And you can watch that episode and get a full story in terms of (laughs) their sexual history and where they are and have resolution at the end. So it does feel like a sort of a a wink to the past. But also, I was really struck by how Charlotte was sort of stepping into her Samantha era. She sort of, you know, every episode, somebody sort of pinch hits for Samantha and Miranda too a little bit. We'll get there. Um, But Charlotte sort of stepping in and being, you know, sexual and, you know, come in my tits. Like, that's fun. That's fun to see Charlotte, your golden blat, say, come on my tits, Harry. <laughs> she said a lot of dirty She's things so... in this. Even uh, Sarah Jessica Parker even said jizz like three times. Four. <laughs> four right. Well, times. that, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that made it feel so classic sex in the city was having the three of them sitting around the table, Mm -hmm. like talking about, you know, can men fake orgasms? And how do they feel about jizz? And like their answers were all so perfect for the three of them, right? And even the jokes about Miranda, you know, her sexuality changing, that was even handled in like a funny, saucy way with her being like, I never liked mayo. I never liked jizz. It's like, uh, that was... Actually funny. I enjoyed that. The way they all describe, like, Carrie sees Jizz as, like, an annoying old friend that you'll miss if it's gone. (laughs) Like, that seems very Carrie. Whereas Charlotte, what did she say? Like, uh, you know, it's like a confetti in a parade. July 4th, the fireworks. (laughs) I also liked that this all arose because the kids were going to camp. I think that was a fun little way to sort of be like, now these two couples are sort of spinning off into weird little storylines that wouldn't be possible maybe if their kids weren't around. 
Also, I don't know if you noticed, Chris, but where they're saying goodbye to the kids, that's the Park Avenue Armory. I was like, that's a theater. I was like, I've <laughs> seen shows there. beautiful <laughs> performance venue on the Upper East Side. Park Avenue um, But yeah. If you're really, really wealthy, your kids get to school, go to camp at the Armory. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I just thought it was a really clever way to both acknowledge a rite of passage that parents of kids that age would be going through, sending their kids off to sleepaway camp, and to put these two couples in a different context, you know, and um, and to have Charlotte... And Harry's thing where, like, the Wexleys are like, oh, they're going to go have sex. And then they do. I I don't know. It just felt like there was a lot of consistent thought in this episode Mm. that, like, everything felt very sort of planned and structured. And I don't know if we could say that about a lot of episodes from season one. Oh, definitely. And again, it's while it's nice that they have children now and that it feels, you know, very of that world and real, we don't want to only see these women with their kids and dealing with their children's problems. That is not what we really signed up for 25 years ago when we met them. Obviously, that is a a part of their lives, and we celebrate that, of course. But the cheer that all the parents let out once the kids' bus drove away... I, too, was cheering because that meant that we could get to a little saucier, a little bit more of a sexy, fun place with at least Charlotte and Harry. I mean, we sort of get that with uh, Lisa and Herbert, but it is also funny that, oh, when the kids away, you can actually get work done. That was also another funny way to sort of take that. So they can do more work. <laughs> they can do more work. Yeah. I thought the the Lisa Todd Wexley plotline this episode was clever. Again, like, oh, I forgot to send the paperless post invite. Um, the mother, uh, Eunice, being traditionally horrible. Um, <laughs> I love the tension between Eunice and um, Billy D. Williams, who played Nicole Ari Parker's dad. That's sort of crazy. They're really pulling, like, the Bear-level guest stars here. We gotta say, everyone's talking about the Bear and their guest stars. And just like that is really sort of they're knocking it out of the park, too, in terms of the guest stars, I think. And to have Billy D like, representing this sort of anti-capitalist point of view. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> in exactly. And, in, uh, you know, and just like that is just so much fun. And the details of, like, you know, he's a playwright, he's a poet, he founded the Newark Free Theater, and you're like, great. I love how specific that is. Yeah. I love the reference in the Lisa Todd Wexley plotline where in the beginning of the episode, Mom, did you pack my retainer? 95% sure. And then later when she's having drinks at the bar, she's like, after I FedEx the retainer. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's so clever. That she, is so... she forgot to do that. The details. I, I think all. the dinner party is interesting uh, in, in the Charlotte of it all, because in Victor Garber's character, who plays this gallerist, we also find out that Charlotte apparently discovered Sonia Sklaroff, who is a real paint, painter, like a very successful yeah, painter. I was like, did I forget that yeah. from the actual show from <laughs> yeah. Sex and the City? I don't think I did. <laughs> yeah. But Victor Garber's character, who is a gallerist, like, he offers her a job. We don't get any closure on that in this episode. But I don't know, like, Joy, do you think that that seems like a plot line that they're going to explore further, right? I hope so. I mean, I really miss Charlotte and the junior gallerina kind of world that that she was in in, in early Sex in the City. So I, I do hope that they bring that back. I think it's definitely part of the whole theme of aging, you know, midlife crisis, refiguring out who who you are as a woman. I mean, Carrie was very much trying to figure out who she was after Big's death, and obviously Miranda is exploring all kinds of new things. So it would be nice, I think, to have that for her. It's a good reminder that, like, Charlotte, I think even in the original series, 
in mid-later seasons, she became this sort of pinched satire of Upper East Side values or whatever. But, like, she has an art history degree. She was very successful. She has a creative interest. Like, her mind is more expansive than I think sometimes the show even gives her credit for. And to reintroduce that... In addition to this fun, saucy sex plot line, mm-hmm. it was a real, like, boon for Charlotte and Kristen Davis. I oh, 100%. I mean, to have her go off into the art world with Victor Garber, which I think would be great. It would be sort of another step on her journey of sort of letting go of her children and that sort of vice grip that she has on both of them. I think that would be great. And then, comedically, I mean, her rhyming, her being a taskmaster, getting <laughs> Harry to do giggles, that was actually hilarious. Are you freaking kidding me? It's like a steel trap down there. You are welcome. I do three sets of ten three times a day. So you can suck it up. Now, come on. Two, three, four. Slurp that sperm from the pelvic floor. The rhyming helps. Oh, good, good, good. Come on. (laughs) And also, she's like, I've been doing this for years. (laughs) You know, like like, like, ten times a day, three times a day. (laughs) Yeah, like honestly, I I would watch that scene of her teaching Harry to do kegels like over and over and over again. (laughs) It's the best. Yeah. Again, it it felt uh, sort of classically Sex and City. So we have Charlotte possibly mulling something career related. Obviously, Lisa Todd Wexley consumed with her job and using the kids being away as an excuse to do more work. We also have Carrie considering career. I mean, I think that the show that is essentially originally premised on what Carrie's job is, which is to write about sex and the city, Mm. is in her mid-50s. Podcast has ended, and she's sort of wondering what's next. She's trying to sell the book. And then in walks Enid, played by Candace Bergen, who is also considering career opportunities in her 70s. 70s, mid-70s, I think. I I don't know. What did did you two make of of the whole Vivant thing? I, I don't it didn't feel too sneering about, like, trying to work in, in later ages, right? I mean, it, it felt funny. It, you know, I feel like uh, it, it offered one of the only sort of really authentic writer moments that I've experienced on the show when Carrie asks Enid if she would mention her book yeah. <laughs> in, you know, in Enid's new newsletter. Like, I've always limited, like, my, you know, please do something with my book to emails, I would never do it in person, mm. but I could literally just feel Carrie's embarrassment like deep in my bones. That was <laughs> such a real moment, <laughs> you know, and I think that like aging wise, it's one of the interesting things that they're doing with these women, you know, as you said, I mean, these women are 20 years apart, but the show's really been picking through kind of like these moments that Gen X women <laughs> are dealing with and Carrie's like, how can I be old if, you know, my friends still call me dude. And then Seema calls her dude. (laughs) You know, but I think it's an interesting episode because it on one hand deals with it very nicely and in lots of delicate, fun ways. On the other hand, you know, having Gloria Steinem give like a speech about ageism maybe like tips it over. (laughs) Well, I was feeling that way, but then it was undercut by the fact that Carrie literally got sent a dick pic during the speech. I was like, the juxtaposition of Gloria Steinem talking about ageism and 
Carrie receiving an elderly gentleman's dick pic, that was a fun uh, cross-section of two different things. That was high-low, sort of like with yeah. Nia Wallace, who wasn't in this episode. No, she wasn't. She was not in this episode. But last week when she was like, we could be talking about abortion rights and all this stuff, but I just got a text. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. The balance of like that more sort of serious inquest into aging but also kind of saying like, no, but we can still have the sort of frothy. So like like life does not sort of become this staid, respectable thing all of a sudden because you turn a certain age. Like, yeah, I think the, I think they sort of they balanced that well. I think that Carrie, who can be an asshole, <laughs> like yeah. she can be mean. And I think even in this episode, she's a little bit like peppery, let's say, with Enid, but like, but I think that's true to the character, and I think that it was nice that the episode invited us to kind of scoff a little bit about this whole, like, the old lady on the stairs saying, do I do I look like I need help? You okay, know, that you, kind of thing. You can cut this if this isn't true, but I'm fairly positive after she said, do, you, do I look like I need help? She called her a cunt after, under her breath. Can I, um, do you need any help? Do I look like I need help? Kind of. That was another hilarious juxtaposition of like, okay, you think you see this little old lady, she's she's climbing up the steps, and then she's a total bitch. <laughs> I would love to know if Gloria Steinem like got the whole script before she right. agreed to do this. <laughs> she's pretty good. She, she's great, really natural on camera. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you get those kind of cameos, and it's just remember when like. I think it was Parks and Recreation, right, where they would have, like, politicians on or whatever, yeah. and they were always so yeah. bad. Stilted. And, like, Gloria Steinem, like, I mean, she, I mean she's I mean, she been on camera millions of times, <laughs> yeah. probably, but, like, I don't know. I, I, That cameo just felt very, like, true to where the show is, and, like, the whole show is inspired by her and yeah. in love. In love. I mean, Betty for Dan, I guess, too, but, like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just felt, like, them calling in a, a sort of Trump card, but, like, in a good way, not not too showy. Um, I don't know. I also hope that the vivant of it all doesn't get forgotten. Like, that would be fun if it, like, Carrie does actually do do some freelance writing for them or something. And it was fun to see Carrie sort of get dunked on a bit where she assumed that, like, she was invited because of her her talent as a writer and her brain. I was like, no, you're a rich lady now. I appreciate the show being like, we have not forgotten that Big left her loaded like so many millions of dollars. And then there she is, like, getting in its PayPal. I mean, okay. I am a little surprised by how quickly Carrie's book has come out. <laughs> like, <laughs> did they like crash publish it? Like, her memoir is breaking news. I, I just, I, I hope we get a book release party. Oh, yeah. We got to have some sort of That'd swanky, swanky book release party. And I wonder who did blurb it. That's a good, you know? That's a good, if not Enid, right. then Maureen who? Dowd. <laughs> maybe. Well, she had a copy of the book in her hand, didn't she? Yeah, but we, I don't think we saw blurbs. We didn't see, I didn't see no. a blurb. Oh, gosh. A blurb, blurb blurbs. getting, by the way, is a hellish process because, like you said, Joy, you just really have to kind of throw yourself, like debase yourself. Down on your knees and just ask. I remember, like, my, my editor, I wrote a YA novel, uh, came out a few years ago, and um, my editor was like, all right, call in all your chits, like, on Twitter, like, who's famous, who follows you? And I was DMing people who I should never have been DMing, being like, can I get your address to send you a galley? And maybe you could, like, why would Jessica Chastain blurb my book? And yet we tried. Yeah, hey, you gotta. (laughs) We tried. You gotta ask Jessica Chastain if you can. Somewhere in her doorman's little office behind the desk, there is a copy of my book at Jessica Chastain's apartment building. Well, you know, I used to be a book review editor. This is, So you uh, are uh, well-versed. Tangential, (laughs) but yes, I, I, sometimes we used to have fun um, looking at the blurbs and trying to figure out what the connection was and how these people got Oh, and it's always a a circuitous route, I'm sure. And actually true to what Enid said, not about the blurbing necessarily, although she she did say it about that, but but also like promoting the book on her newsletter, is I got a lot of, 
I just, I don't blurb these days because, mm. you know, if you give a mouse a cookie, like, you, you have to kind of do it for everybody and then it gets really political and whatever. And so the show knows what it's talking about on that front and uses it for great sort of awkward social comedy. Yeah. And I'll yeah. always blurb your book, Richard. Oh, thank you. Good, good. Um, I'll have to write <laughs> one, uh, <laughs> another one. Um Let's move over over to Miranda. I think this is an interesting dynamic episode for her. Lots of changes and and, and, and a more of a consideration of what she left behind when she went to L.A. But in a more general sense, I don't know if you two have seen this online, but a lot of people, they're really upset about where Miranda is. She used to be this cool, savvy lawyer, and now every embarrassing plotline kind of falls on her. And now she's making all these weird mistakes, and she's going to L.A. And I don't know, Joey, do you feel like this season is being true to who Miranda always was? Does it feel like a really jarring character shift? I have really mixed feelings about it. You know, I I talked to Cynthia Nixon uh, a couple of weeks ago. And she was very, she very much defended where Miranda was this season and kind of put it back on the viewers that perhaps people were feeling defensive about themselves, you know, the fact that they mm-hmm. identified with Miranda and maybe they weren't as cool and smart <laughs> as they think they are. I'm a Miranda and I wouldn't do that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I think the first season was maybe awkwardly done. And it feels like this season is trying, or at least this episode, is trying to sort of bring it back to uh, a more realistic place where Miranda is wanting something different and she's trapped. She's kind of, you know, has one foot in each world, literally in this episode. Mm. She's sleeping on the couch in her old New York apartment in sweatpants, having just finished the glamorous, you know, make-believe L.A. life fantasy that she lived out with Che for a minute. So, you know, I think we might see some changes in this character. I mean, Miranda's, you know, in family therapy, and she is going to have a more realistic relationship with Che that is filled with threesomes, but also complications. But again, I not to be like team the internet, but like even that, I was so excited when that started happening, even though I think there was definitely uh, an interesting conversation to be had about Che sort of just popping that on Miranda sort of in the middle of the night without necessarily running it by her. But I was like, okay, go, Miranda. Like, you live. You have this threesome and whatnot. And then the Charlie horse, the humiliation has to strike. It does feel, let's let Miranda grow and change, but let's let her really do it instead of, like, constantly holding her back a little bit and playing its comedic effect. I don't know. I was a little bit... I think it was supposed to be read as, like, oh, that's a sweet moment that Che picked Miranda over Lyle, I guess. But I was more disappointed that... They didn't just all get it on. If that's what Miranda ultimately wanted to do, but maybe that's not what Miranda ultimately wanted It was wanted interesting to do. That, that she was like, oh, I, I'm going to go sleep out, but you guys continue. Like, Miranda wasn't being super possessive mm-hmm. over Che or whatever. But yeah, I think that, like, yet again, some sort of thing befalls Miranda at an awkward moment. And <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, her character, that was true of her character in the original show as well, you know, the tantric sex thing and like whatever. Like she was she was often the butt of that sort of humor. But yeah, I, I don't know. I also I worry in some small way. I don't think the show is actually doing this, but you could read it that like she is 
having to sort of suffer the consequences of, as she says in this episode, of sort of blowing up her life, blowing yeah. up her family's life. And I think that that was really well articulated when she's talking to Carrie. This is Brady. This is not a kid who self-motivates. And Steve is just sitting there like it's totally chilled that our son has decided to completely skip college. Well, why didn't you say anything? Because I blew us up and we all know it. It's the silent agreement Steve and I co-signed. He's not allowed to punch me in the face, and I'm not allowed to take up any more space than the couch. Sounds healthy to me. Yeah, right. Do we think the show is being punitive to Miranda because of what she decided to do last season? I don't think necessarily with Che. I think that's playing out in her home personal dynamic, which that therapy scene, I appreciated that. I also did love... Speaking of time jumps, that we were just like, okay, Brady's over his breakup. Let's get to the real thing. Like, we didn't need to waste <laughs> one more second. I mean, that was very teenage, right? It was right? very like, teenage. Like, yeah. okay, it's been yeah. three weeks. I'm over it. Yeah. Now I'm, let's it get to It is funny, the though, that the kids, you know, have not really worked out as a as central figures. They're just, they're still just kind of props. And we don't really care uh, about Brady no. and his breakup. But I do think the audience cares about Steve, mm, yes. which was something that really came out last season. You know, Steve was one of the most beloved characters. And I think the feeling was Steve is really being kind of ignored and left out to dry. And how do we, you know, how are we going to do Steve like that? So I, I think to some degree, what seemed to me to be happening was a little more of a sense of, the real world consequences of what happened and not necessarily punishing Miranda. I mean, hopefully she will sort of emerge and, and be able to have fun, but kind of a more realistic sense of, okay, this is what happens. And, you know, here's, <laughs> here's the, the, you know, the remnants of the marriage and, and she's still kind of a little bit mired in that. Yeah. And it would be unrealistic if Miranda came out and, and, you know, really sort of blew up her family and there was absolutely no sort of wreckage to sort of sift through and there were no consequences like that wouldn't that wouldn't ring true. I think it's it's not fun to watch because we love Miranda and we want the best for her. And she seems to be, you know, if Charlotte gets her milk lists and her, you know, slurping up sperm on the pelvic floor mm-hmm. and Miranda you know, gets Charlie horses <laughs> in bed and uh, alienates Steve. It's tough. To me, that was part of the aging theme, though. It sort of went a little bit with, you know, Carrie being on the mailing list for AARP, which, you know, I mean, as soon as you've turned 40, you're on that list. So good luck getting off of it, Carrie. But, you know, I think the Charlie horse, I think a lot, there's a lot of things that sort of ran through the episode. And that for the f- past couple of episodes, I mean, there was a thing about plastic surgery and all of that. So I think there's sort of exploring that in lots of different ways. But yes, I hope that Miranda does not get punished along the way. Yeah. That being said, I found it really interesting to get more of both Lyle and Che's backstory. Lyle being a, a very shampoo-esque Beverly Hills hairdresser. Yes, many-ringed, yeah. uh, a, a ringed-wearing <laughs> yeah. Beverly Hills who likes to be pegged, and we love that. Carrie, being her prudish self again, can't hear a man say the word pegged without having to exit the room. But it, it was nice to get some context re-Jay, because they can almost feel like this being that just plopped out of the sky mm-hmm. that 
did no not context. exist. No context. Didn't yeah. exist. Not even a real person, really. A plot device. Yes, a yeah. plot device to yeah. push Miranda and to be like, oh, no, they've had their own experiences. Their sort of evolution. I appreciated that. And it did ground. It made the, I don't know, the denouement of the episode with like Miranda and Che on the couch. I was like, oh, these are two real people. Real people. Yeah. Together. Speaking of Che's character, I'm sort of conflicted about this. On the one hand, I don't buy it. But on the other hand, someone kind of as corny as Che would totally live in Hudson Yards. Hudson Yards felt so <laughs> spiritually right to me for Che. If people don't know what Hudson Yards is, <laughs> it is a development on the west side of Midtown Manhattan in the 30 streets. Sort of brand um, new. That is basically like a little mini Dubai. It's like <laughs> high-rise living. Shopping mall. Very expensive store shopping mall. Warner Brothers is based there yes, in their New, New York offices, which is, I mean, obviously this is all related to the owners of Max and, and just like that. And, totally. and it felt like Spider-Man. Con to the extent that I looked it up. <laughs> Carrie, when she goes over to the house, is carrying a little gift bag of booze. Yeah. And it's literally from the logo, the liquor store in the Hudson Yards. No. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> that is so yeah. cringe in a bad way. That and is like good. some like YouTube influencers live there now because I think they're getting literally like rent deals oh, um, to like advertise like, look at this high rise living in Manhattan. But I, yeah, so I, I don't know. That all said, like I kind of do buy Che, who's not not an influencer. Oh, I'm sure they have <laughs> like, so many followers. Actually, we did see that last season yeah. when Miranda Dan them that they like had a bunch of followers. Right. Oh, that feels so spiritually right. And I do think the show is doing the SpawnCon. I clocked it last episode when the T-Mobile of it all was sort of everywhere. The <laughs> Miranda oh, right, that's right, yeah. going out of the T-Mobile store. So I and I don't fault you. Get your TV show made however you can. But the spawn kind of side, it is a corny enough place. Sorry to anybody who lives in Hudson Yards, but you know what you did. That Shay if would, you if you live in Hudson Yards, move to literally any other <laughs> city. Like it's just so not New York, but whatever. No. Yeah, no. enjoy the shed. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I, I like that um, that we're. I, I'm really happy they're out of LA. Mm, no, yeah. no offense to your city, Joy, but I just I, I needed people back in New York. Um, How <laughs> where, where did they you belong. feel about uh, the way they they depicted LA? Well, you know, it felt like. A very, you know, New Yorker over-enthusiastically embraces the L.A. fantasy scenario. Mm. And I was a born and bred New Yorker who relocated to L.A. And I can tell you that, like, it is not a requirement to wear floaty, bright beach clothes and <laughs> embrace sensory deprivation tanks. Like, I still dress all in black, <laughs> even if it gives oh, me heat stroke. <laughs> uh, that's funny that you mentioned the floaty, like, because Miranda wore that again this episode, this sort of the pink and orange floaty sort of beachy dress. She wore that to see Che and Hudson Yards, and I was like, oh, that's interesting that, you know, we're repeating outfits. I don't I don't know what that's about, or should I be reading into that? Yeah, maybe that's a continuation of her little Che fantasy. Yeah. You know, but I mean, in terms of LA, like, I would say that, like, their version of New York was never my version of New York. Sure. So mm. it's always a certain kind of fantasy anyway. But yes, I mean, no Angelino would, would applaud their take on LA. I mean, it's very much <laughs> like a vacation projection, a New Yorker's projection, like all those New York Times articles, you know, uh, trend pieces about LA that make Angelino's heads explode. <laughs> Which is why they do them. <laughs> you know, like exactly. Like, a... you know, we have to drive between rooms in our house. I mean, that's... That was a Che joke. <laughs> right. I, I do want to bring this up, not to look into the future too much, but 
what are we, we're four episodes in and not not a whisper of Aiden yet. I know, which is the big advertised thing about this season. I was sort of in, like, is he going to, if he pops up for like a Samantha amount of time at the end of the season, I'm going to be upset because I'm really looking forward to having him back into the fold and how that shakes things up. But I wonder if Carrie's recent text with the old man, Marlon, if that's gonna shoot her back into the, like, the dating pool and being like, I can't be set up by Bitsy. This is not gonna, this isn't gonna work. Carrie is, you know, she's had plot lines about the podcast and not wanting to read ad copy, which was involving a man that she was dating. We haven't gotten a, like, A plot line Carrie romantic thing yet. Yeah. Um, maybe they're just saving their gas for Aiden. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know, it could be a cameo. Or it could be an actual plot line. I don't know. I don't know. But I feel like it's... I'm ready. I was like, I'm glad that we've gotten some time with just Carrie and sort of like setting up shop. But now I'm like, okay, let's bring on the big Kahuta. Or let's yeah. bring... Well, just for the record, I am Team Aiden. But I know when Hillary returns, you will get an earful. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why are you Team Aiden so we have it on the record for when Hillary comes back and and vehemently disagrees? Who does not want a guy who can make you furniture? I mean, that's true. Absolutely. That is that's very it. true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's as simple and, as that. and let's not forget, has a very charming house upstate. Yeah. That Carrie was always horrible. Hate about. it. Hate it. Well, house. Always. She's, it's, a, it's in one episode. <laughs> yeah. But that episode, I actually, when I did a ranking years ago for VF, when I first started working here almost 10 years ago, I did a ranking of all the seasons and all the best episodes and whatever. I think the season with Aiden's upstate house is the best season. Mm, yeah. But I kind of said that was the worst episode because I was just appalled by the fact that Carrie is so rude about Aiden's <laughs> okay. lovely home. I mean, it's a cabin, but it's simple. But but, um, it was pre-COVID. She didn't know that she'd want to have a place upstate where she'd want to oh, be able to get away I from bet the Aiden city. lived up there. Oh, I bet he had to eat. He was just <laughs> sawing away with his dog. Do we, think Aiden, dog. do we think Aiden is vaccinated? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we think Seema and Aiden are not vaccinated. <laughs> well, we know she, we, we were assuming Charlotte, Charlotte and Big voted Trump for Trump. Yes, right? like, yes. but they did also hoard vaccines. <laughs> They're all voting for RFK. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I hope he addresses that when he comes on the show. <laughs> oh, my God. Gosh, if politics, uh, you know, starts uh, appearing in the series via the Wexleys, like all hell could break oh loose on, on that front. Running for comptroller. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. We didn't talk about that. But yes, yes, we are about to enter something of a political plot line, mm-hmm. possibly. Although comptroller, not like the flashiest. He's yeah, not running for mayor. Yeah. No, <laughs> so. let's hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Still watching. We'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with Nicole Ari Parker, and we'll weigh in on the fashion hits and misses. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's a common fear. You host a party and no one turns up. This week, we got to live out the nightmare thanks to the Wexleys. I got the chance to catch up with Lisa Todd Wexley herself, played by the similarly three-named Nicole Ari Parker. We tested the power of Wi-Fi in rural Germany and talked about her time at NYU and Lisa Todd Wexley and Herbert's fascinating relationship. Here's our conversation. 
going into and just like that season one, when you're, you know, auditioning for the role or you're offered the role, what are you feeling? Are you, is it like nerve wracking? I mean, Sex and the City is such like a cultural phenomenon, having the opportunity to join the cast and to sort of be a part of that in a major way. What's running through your mind when that opportunity comes along? Um, yes. Where do I sign up? And it was kind of quick because it was the last day of auditions and I was working on another project and I didn't have Wi-Fi. I was shooting in the, in a studio factory in Brooklyn and uh, it was my lunch break. And I read with MPK and the other producers and uh, casting. And I learned soon after that I got the part. And then my agent told me he thinks Sarita got the offer as well on SEMA. And uh, we've been friends for over 25 years. Like That's so incredible. I know. We were starving actresses together in New York. Gosh, and now you're on this amazing New York-based sort of like creme de la creme show. I know. Just it's full circle. I want to sort of dive into season two because I think, you know, a lot of people, we enjoyed season one and it was great to sort of, you know, have these new characters and Lisa Todd Wexley and Naya, Dr. Naya Wallace and Seema Patel and whatnot. And now in season two, we get a lot more time and space with each of these ladies. We're delving further into their personal lives, their marriages, their, you know, separations, their children. How did you feel sort of going into season two and sort of seeing like, oh, wow, I'm going to have more to do? Well, you know, I really felt like we had all settled in and weathered the storm of the Sex and the City fans. And um, I think MPK had a real vision of what he wanted to see and for himself with these characters. I mean, these Mm -hmm. were his ideas out of his head. And he really wanted to not change the rhythm of the show, but at the same time, really give as much of a fullness to these characters as he could. And I think when people are responding to these new characters this season, what we can remember behind the scenes is that what you're seeing was chosen. So the scene, for example, with with Herbert trying to get a taxi cab, Mm -hmm. you know, that might be a one minute scene, but there's so much information in that scene. And it's so realistic to the people who know that moment. Yeah. And yet it's still on brand with sex in the city. It's New York city. Even the kids are fabulously dressed. There's a fabulous mother-in-laws and you know, a yellow cab. And yet there's so much information that really gives the feeling that you're seeing more of these characters. You're, you're knowing them a bit more. But um, it feels really good to be part of something that's 25 years old, mm. that's about New York City, and that's expanding its base characters again, but also that there are women and women of color behind the scenes, mm. um, and that MPK wants it that way. That's a really comforting place to go to work every day. I love that. I actually recently said on the podcast, I loved that scene with Herbert, you know, because, you know, that's happened to me so many times trying to hail a cab. It just completely ignored, you know. My husband and I, when we're in New York, we live on Central Park West. And if one of our friends was inviting us to a big gala or dinner party, we might have to opt out of the taxi cab situation if we want to make it on time. 
Absolutely. And it's such a specific New York thing, but it also, it uh, the reverberations, and it's done so nicely, the scene with you and Eunice and Herbert, um, in terms of, yeah, it's not Selma, but it is still uh, racism, and it's still present today. Yeah, and I was also talking to someone about the scene with the little girls. Your brain doesn't realize that you're taking in this very specific detail, but if you look at the scene again, our daughter... Mm -hmm. A little African-American girl with a little white friend, right? And they are being so innocent. They are enjoying each other at this age where we still do. (laughs) And something very life-changing might be in one of their futures, you know, with her dad off the curb. They're waiting patiently and the grandmother's coming around the corner with her sorority sisters, which is also something historically (laughs) black, her AKA group. And so... There's just a lot of information in there that also tells a bigger story. I do want to talk about, I love, I'm loving the Lisa Todd Wexley and Eunice, the mother-in-law from hell situation, because it's so reminiscent of Charlotte and Bunny. Oh, yeah. It's to see sort of like, you know, a black matriarch, a black mother-in-law from hell, like that happens across every race and, you know, across. When presentation and all those things meant something to that generation. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was part of their survival. They're part of their ability to move safely where they could in public spaces with where the hair was done and the clothes iron. I mean, my dad was born in 1941 and my mom in 1943 and they're both here. And, you know, my dad dropped me off at NYU with an iron and a shoe shine kit. Shoe shine. To take care of my things. He said, Nikki, you got to take care of your things. But Mm. that's that generation of pressed and laid and done and put together and don't come out the house with a wrinkled shirt on. And uh, I'm so grateful. Like, I mean, I know how to keep my, my Valentino boots shiny. (laughs) (laughs) That is, if that's not, and just like that, you got to keep, you got to keep your Valentino boots (laughs) shiny. I got to say, so going into episode four, it's like, so we have, you know, uh, your mother-in-law, but then we meet your father too, who is a completely different type of, you know, man. And they sort of go head to head at this dinner that didn't go exactly as planned. That's right. (laughs) Lisa, for all of her skills, it's so great in terms of, the character, um, just because she seems to be sort of like, you know, the woman who has it all, right? She's got an amazing she's an amazing job, amazing husband, the whole family. She's juggling all of these things. And when you're juggling all these things, you know, even if you're not Lisa Todd Wexley, balls can drop. And in this case, it was the invitations. Um, that is such a perfect marital fiasco, though. Because when you're dealing with your kids and your own life and your own jobs, and then your mate, and then all the, the scheduling, babe, can you handle that? Oh, yeah, I can handle that. Got it. Done. No problem. And then he probably went and answered an email or took a call and didn't get didn't push the button. He did not hit send. That was also very real. Um, did you see who played my dad? A living a living legend. Yes. Yes. The one and only Billy D. Williams. Living legend. I had to like go gather myself when he walked on the set. I'd like to make a toast to my beautiful daughter, Lisa, and her magnificent film that I've just been told is in the Tribeca Film Festival. <laughs> he does know it's our anniversary, right? Can you talk about what it was like to film that scene, you know, oh, yeah. with well, Billy D. Williams? Well, first of all, Pat Bowie, who plays my mother-in-law, mm-hmm. is just original New Yorker artist, jazz singer. And, I mean, these are veteran artists. So, first of all, to have to share the screen with her was magnificent. And then when MPK told me that, 
Billy D. Williams was going to play my father. I almost <laughs> fell off the chair. Wow. And he is funny and smart and gallant and larger than life in person mm. still. He really... He could read the phone book. I mean... Absolutely. Honestly, him and Pat Bowie could just... <laughs> I know. Oh, it was really... It was such a delight to see, you know, we're getting all these sort of great guest stars this season from, you know, Tony Danza to, you know, Billy D. Williams to just yes. people that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Candace Bergen, Gloria Steinem. And yeah, it's like... it's And the thing that I think the show is doing so well is that we got these sort of like highbrow moments of like glamour. And then we've got the MILF list, which was absolutely hilarious <laughs> and played for such laughs. And you and Kristen Davis, you have such, I mean, you have such great comedic timing together and your relationship really does feel like. Well, she's a dream and a gem and she just is so easy to work with and play comedy off of. And First season, I was really watching all of them, you know, mm -hmm. and now I feel kind of part of the gang. And so, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. In that scene, if you heard it correctly, there's a line in there where I say, why do I feel like Blanche Dubois? I've got to say this now. I saw you play Blanche Dubois on Broadway with Blair oh. Underwood and you were unbelievable. So I was like, oh, my God. That was like, was that it? Was that part of the I was like, that's so meta. It's so it was so meta when I read it, but MBK is really smart. He knows everything about all of us. He I don't know where he stores all of the information in his brilliant mind, but he he might pull something out, you know, every now and then at the table read on this on the page, and we all are like, what? <laughs> it's so great too this season because we have just more people. We have these great combinations where it's like now the brunch table. There was you and. Naya and Carrie and I think it was Seema, you know, all sitting together, like gabbing and, you know, having the classic sort of sex in the city brunch table conversations. Yes. What's it like to like sit at that sort of, you know, table, which sort of like. Their lunch scenes are kind of iconically part of the show. Right. So SJ is so kind and generous that it feels like we just are there already. You know, it, there was that all of them, Kristen, Cynthia, they're so um, aware of what they've built on the one hand, but also welcoming these new characters with all the bumpiness and, and you know, fan reactions. They're so human and real. And for the people that love them, they are who you think they are, like just deeply sensitive and kind and intelligent and powerful women in person. And it's fun. It's like... I mean, you know what's fun? Are my fittings. Pretty much feels like my very own Bergdorf Goodman. Every fitting. Yeah, it's like 15 purses lined up just to pick the right green. Molly's like, mm, I think it should be more of a Kelly. Yeah, <gasps> a Kelly green. A Kelly green. Yeah. Bergdorf. Oh, yeah. There's just racks and racks of shoes and dresses. I just stand there and they hand me stuff. And again, I keep saying Lisa Todd Wexley. To, to me, she is Lisa Todd Wexley. She's not Lisa. She's not Lisa Todd. She's Lisa Todd Wexley. Do you think of her as like a three name? Is that, how do you in your shorthand conceive of her? Is she just Lisa to no, you or is it? <laughs> I'm a three name person. I was going to say, you are Nicole Ari Parker. So it does really make a lot of sense. It really works. <laughs> you know, in fact, I was so starstruck 
and uh, we were in the makeup trailer. Sarah Jessica Parker walked in and she welcomed me to the set and she was excited. And then I remember her from Square Pegs. Wow. It was her first TV show or one of her first. So I'm like, she's part of the fabric of my childhood. You know, <laughs> I just said to her, you know, sometimes <laughs> I'm just so embarrassed right now, but sometimes I I'm on the phone trying to make reservations and I, and they say the name and I say, Nicole Ari Parker and they go, what? And I said, Nicole Ari Parker. And they say, sorry. And I say, no, it's three names like Sarah, Jessica, Sarah, Jessica Parker Nicole, and then they go, oh, okay, not Nicolari. It's Nicole Ari Parker. So I said that to her, and she just kind of nodded in her Carrie Bradshaw way, like, thank you for that bit of information at six in the morning. And then, and then she just hugged me. Still watching from Vanity Fair, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, we'll dissect the fashionable moments of the episode. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. And finally, let's talk fashion. Uh, there weren't that many looks uh, this episode, I'd say. So it's going to be a little bit maybe slim pickings for killer looks and or fashion roadkill. But I will say I do have a fashion roadkill only because Carrie was sort of lightly ribbing Enid for being like a 75-year-old woman at coffee with Seema. And she was wearing literally a pilgrim hat. <laughs> she was wearing a three-point. She looked straight out of the Pilgrim era. And I was like, okay, those in glass houses should not throw stones. If you're going to sort of, you know, like make fun of Enid for being such an old woman, you're sort of dressed in a very, in a very matronly, elderly fashion. Well, it was also, she was also, I might point out, wearing a giant white muumuu. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a three-point yeah. hat. Yeah, it might confuse people not just about her age, but her century. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's going to be a fashion roadkill for me. I love carry big swings. I mm. like a belt around a naked waist. I like, you yeah, know, like a big flower for a, no a, a little ruffle on the back of a mini skirt, you know, the, some of the most notorious looks that she's worn. Yeah, the hat doesn't, didn't work. <laughs> didn't, didn't work. And with the subject matter, it was. The fashion in general this season feels muted. Mm-hmm. Like, it's weird because we began with, like, the Met Ball. And so you're like, okay, we're setting the scene for wild looks. And I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I feel like I haven't been grabbed by anything. Maybe maybe there's that. I'm sure that's something happening behind the scenes. That, yeah. Like, they wanted more restraint or something. I don't know. We want more pigeon bags. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, exactly. People, yeah, people were mad about that pigeon bag. We got uh, an email or two about... Uh, carrying the gray jumpsuit from the Real Deal episode, uh, holding the pigeon bag, which I thought was maybe a little bit of a nod to that really ugly purse that 
Big gave her that was like a bird themed, the diamond encrusted oh, purse. Remember that? Vaguely, yeah. From, it was yeah. a really oh. terrible bag. It's one of the worst bags. But um, I thought that was a little nod to that. Um, was the Moo the most standout look for you, Joy? Honestly, I really loved Charlotte's black bra. Mm. And oh, okay. I'm really happy that Harry did not besmirch it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was a, 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 a happy accident. Yeah. yeah. But uh-huh. otherwise, you know, I just thought some of the looks were fine. I mean, yeah. like Lisa Todd Wexley's fuchsia cocktail dress, mm. you know, just sort of screamed like my kids are away at an extremely expensive summer camp. Yeah. I mean, Seema's like animal print coat was elegant. But yeah, there. I don't know. Carrie's looks were, other than that white moo were v- very understated. Yeah. I liked Gloria Steinem's pantsuit. That's an interesting assignment if you're like the wardrobe person. Okay, we need a suit for Gloria Steinem. How are we going to dress for <laughs> Gloria Steinem? That is that is a, a tricky task, but they pulled it off. It was red, right? It yeah, was like a red blazer? It was like a red blazer, yeah. Very like Hillary power suit. <laughs> right, exactly. If you look closely at the trailer so for the season, Aiden is wearing the same pantsuit. <laughs> <laughs> they live together in Hudson Yards. <laughs> Gloria Steinem and Aiden, that's the, that's the twist. Yeah, they, they put a pressure wall in the studio, so they have, it's tech now a two bedroom. Now it's a two bedroom. Yeah. They're next door to Oh my chat. god, someone someone <laughs> snuck into my dream and stole that. <laughs> So that does it for this episode of Still Watching. Once again, please, if you have any thoughts about And Just Like That Season 2, fashion critiques. When Aiden is going to come, what Samantha is going to say when she gets here. Miranda rants, and there are a lot of those online, so yeah. send them our way. Uh, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com is the address. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on Twitter at Christress, C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. And I'm on Twitter at Joy Press. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Gabe Quiroga. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next Thursday for Episode 5. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hey, don't come slut-shame her. That is going to be your new name in my phone, though. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.